You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. My name is Jeff McCorder. I'm one of the elders here at Northway, and it is really a joy and honor to have the opportunity to stand up here and open the Word of God with you this morning. Just by way of introduction, uh, I'm married to my wife, Kelly. We have five little children. Four of them are sitting here on the front row with us today, Ellie, Clara, Avery, and Nathan. Little Travis is over in the next gen. Uh, We have been here for 11 years at Northway, or the Village Church, Dallas Northway, and our children have grown up in the context of this church, and this place has really become our family. We've been a part of the same gospel community for, it'll be 10 years next month, and having the opportunity to help love and shepherd uh, this family here has been one of the greatest joys of my life. But to be honest with you, I have to say, I think for some of us lay elders, when we get the opportunity to stand up here and preach, we come with a little bit of trepidation. Uh, You know, I don't have a ton of theological training, formally speaking, haven't been to seminary. I don't know Greek or Hebrew. I'm a photographer. That's my full-time job. And yes, you will see some pictures here today. I spend most of my day sitting at my desk, editing photos, you know, thinking of story ideas, writing emails, things like that. When I'm not doing that, I'm usually on dad duty. Um, I don't really have the Goodwin level insight into the original language or the Shea Sumlin knowledge of the historical context. But the good news this morning is this, that as complex and difficult as the word of God can be, it's also very beautifully simple. As we will walk, walk through here in a minute, the simple truths that I sing and teach to my children every night are the same truths that anchor all of us in the toughest moments. The good news is that our God speaks for himself just fine in this book without me. And so my goal this morning is to simply help you hear from him afresh and be reminded of his character, which is revealed in the simple text that we're going to be in this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, or if you don't, you can grab one. There should be one in the the seat in front of you. Our text is going to be out of the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. So a little bit of context while you flip there. What we're about to read is a very familiar scene in the life of Jesus. He's in the region of Judea, probably in a small, maybe mountainous village just east of the River Jordan. There's probably a a mountain range rising in the distance to the north. And as usual, he's got a crowd of people that have come around him ready to ask questions and hear what he has to say. So as I read the text, if you don't mind, I want you to close your eyes and try to really Visually imagine, remember I said I'm a photographer, I love the images, visually imagine what this looks like. He may be sitting in the dirt, maybe he's on the stone steps of some small family home. A crowd of people, probably not a huge crowd, because remember it's a small town, has gathered close to him and to hear what he has to say. But there are children playing noisily as children do around the perimeter. Maybe it's late in the day, in the afternoon, the sun is slanting in through the olive trees, illuminating the dust that's kicked up by the children. And Mark writes, they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. 
And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us this morning. Help us to see you in your word. I love this text. I love how simple it is, the truth that you love children and you call us to come in the same way. Or would you give us the humility to hear from you, to hear that from you this morning and to come that way. In the name of your son, Jesus. So this is a simple, straightforward text, right? It's one of the first stories that children hear. It's in every children's Bible. It was probably in the children's Bible that Shea had that did not include the crucifixion, right? It's almost impossible to hear the story and not picture in your head a round-faced cartoon Jesus with three or four kids sitting on his lap, and they're all smiling. It's not a difficult saying like Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. It's not a cryptic saying like the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24. And like I said, I don't have some new or special or secret revelation to draw out of this passage today that you've never heard before. But I chose it this morning because I think it's a text that serves to sum up in the way Jesus so often does what it truly means to be his. It's one of those verses that is almost maddeningly simple. Like we feel like we can either just breeze past it or we feel like we need to add some special meaning to it. And like all of Jesus' sayings, it's not meant for the figure outer. This is a saying for the heart. Remember, Jesus said, I did not come to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And this today is a saying for the sick. It's a saying for the sinners. It's a comfort to the wounded and weary and a loving barb to the arrogant and self-assured. My hope for us today is that we would remember that we are all sick and that we would come on our knees desperate to find in the Father heart of God the comfort and healing that he alone can bring. I want to start by looking at what is probably the most literal and direct uh, takeaway from this passage that Jesus, the incarnate king of the universe, loves children. Again, it's not some secret, groundbreaking, special revelation here. It's a simple fact. Jesus loves children. You think about how many stories are recorded in Scripture, in the four Gospels, about the life and words of Jesus while he was here on earth. And yet, this story right here, this story is included in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John wrote at the end of his gospel that if everything Jesus, had di- everything Jesus did and said had been written down, that the, words, the world itself couldn't contain all the books that would be written. And yet here is this little story about Jesus interacting with these tiny humans, and it was considered worth including. Children are so dear to the heart of God, and they ought to be to us as well. And some might say, yeah, this goes without saying. We should love children, right? But I disagree That does not go without saying. While most people in society probably wouldn't admit it, the prevailing belief in our culture is that children are a burden, a hindrance, and an inconvenience. You're not. (laughs) They keep us from living our best and fullest lives, that they're a messy, bratty, uncool drain on the payroll. In our family, we have five kids, which really, historically and globally speaking, is not that unusual. It's not that many. But today in our society, you will find that five children is sort of the tipping point to like, there must be something wrong with you. You you get those questions of, are you Mormon? Are you Catholic? Or of course, everybody's favorite, don't you know what causes that? And it's so pervasive that it's almost with my kids become like an inside joke that especially when I'm out with just the five of them at the grocery store, 
every time. We get one of those or, you know, one that we commonly get is, oh, you sure do have your hands full. And it's me and Ellie, my oldest daughter, kind of have a thing where when people say that, we sort of look at each other like, there it is again, that same idea. But I will tell you, not everybody thinks this way. We've got a neighbor, Bill Adams, that lives a few houses down, takes care of the feral cats, and from time to time walks down the street to cut the hair of another elderly neighbor. And there was one, one afternoon a few months ago where we were out in the front yard swinging on the swing, doing our thing with all the kids, and Bill stopped and he specifically looked at me and he was like, I just want you to know how blessed you are to have these kids and like how much I love seeing you out here and seeing, you, like seeing your family outside on our neighborhood. And it made such an impression on me. I, I turned to the kids and said, see, not everybody thinks that way. Bill recognizes the truth of Psalm 127, three through five, which says, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And that truth is what Jesus reinforces here in Mark 10. Not only does he completely contradict the perspective that children are an unfortunate inconvenience, but he goes even further. He elevates them as an example to the adults standing around of what true faith looks like. And we must, here at Northway, we must be vigilant to embody the heart of Jesus towards children. We must be vigilant to not let the prevailing cultural attitude towards children that they're an inconvenience begin to seep into our community. Here at Northway, children are welcome. We don't shuffle them off to the side. We celebrate the beauty and joy they bring to the world that they bring to this body. We don't see the call to discipline and train them up as a burden, but rather as a joy and a high calling that increasingly shapes both them and us more into the image of Christ. We humble ourselves as adults, get on their level and truly listen to them. And in doing so, we dignify their full personhood. Children's ministry is not a second tier ministry. Children's ministry is not a second tier ministry. It doesn't exist exist just so we have somewhere to put the children so they're not in here to bother us on a Sunday morning. It's a battleground for the souls of our kids where the soil is tilled and the first seeds of truth are planted. I will say this is true. The questions and wounds that our children carry are every bit as deep as those borne by the adults in this room. And they demand just as much empathetic attention, fervent prayer, and steadfast love. And I truly am so encouraged always at the way the next-gen staff and volunteers so deeply, passionately believe and embody this truth. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> um, you will often hear it said here at Northway that the mission field begins behind our front doors, and it does. I firmly believe that the home is the primary place of discipleship. It's where it begins. And those of us who are parents have this beautiful God-given call, God call to proclaim the gospel within our own homes and make disciples of our own children. It's a high calling. And while we have this God-given mission within the walls of our own home, with our own children, we also have the privilege of inviting them in to an exciting outward-looking mission. Should be a photo coming up. Like my friend Chris and his son Sammy. Children are not, listen, children are not a hindrance to the mission of the church. They're essential to it. We invite them in along on an adventure. And in doing so, we model for them what missional living looks like, just like this. 
And yes, do you think we were at TJ building these shelves? Do you think Chris Sinclair built that shelf as fast as he probably wanted to with Sammy standing on the piece that he needed? No, no, they will slow you down. That's not a bad thing. You might feel like you went out to go serve and you brought your kids along or you had kids with you and you spent the whole time chasing them around and you felt like you accomplished nothing that you set out to do. You didn't do anything for the kingdom, but I promise you it is worth it. It's worth the inconvenience and the effort. Sometimes that is the point. What you set out to do was not necessarily the point. And like Shay talked about last week, we are called to open our homes to the hurting and vulnerable, invite people in, and children are an integral part of this ministry. What does this look like practically? When I was growing up, I had the privilege of watching my parents model this in the sense that every Thanksgiving and Christmas, there was somebody at our table that was not part of our biological family and was usually somebody that was in a really difficult spot. And inviting somebody into your home that's in a really difficult spot for a holiday changes the way a holiday plays out. But for my sister and I, we saw that this is what you do. This is normal. You have people in your house that need a place to be. My parents modeled that. Another example is the Cheney family. Just left us, just moved up to Spokane, Washington. They were part of this body for a long time. They, were, they constantly fostered and adopted children, like Shay talked about last week. The three girls, oh, hold on, can you go back one? The three girls in the middle um, are their biological kids. The two on the outside are biological siblings, but they were adopted in. And you can go ahead with the photos. Watching the way that the three biological Cheney girls, especially the oldest, Elena and Ava, welcomed those foster kids and the adopted kids into the family was a beautiful thing to behold. They were part of the ministry, 100%. Another example, the Smith family should be next, Harold and Shelby. Um, You've seen this family around here, especially if you've been around here a while. For years, every Sunday, back there at the door or when we used to have it in the foyer, inviting their children into the mission that God has called them to. They're part of it. I've watched little Hudson grow up from being a crazy little boy to being a young man. You know, he's part of the the body of this church and he's serving right alongside his family. What does it look like for my family, for my gospel community? As a lot of you know, we have a lot of relationships with the TJ kids, the cross country team and the soccer team in in our gospel community. And it's kind of become a wintertime tradition. That's when soccer season is. And we'll go out, the games usually start at 8 p.m., which is usually our bedtime, but we're going out there and put all the kids in the car, bundle up in the coats, and it's a fun thing. Like we take a big bag of candy. Every time TJ scores, we give candy out to all the, all the other fans. Um, and we, as we're driving out there, we're talking about, this is why we're going. We're going out to, to express our love and care for these kids, to tell them that we're proud of them. And then soon enough, the, those kids are coming into our house, just like my parents did when I was little. They're sitting at our table, sitting around our fire, um, you know, with the rest of the the gospel community, sharing meals, playing Uno, um, having water fights with the kids in, in the gospel community. And these kids see us with our kids and our kids see them as people that are welcome into our home. It's just normal life. There's nothing special about it. It's just inviting people into your normal life and recognizing that your kids are part of that. They're not in the way, they're part of it. Now, I understand that there are probably some of you sitting out there that are like, I'm a 20-year-old DBU student. I don't have a girlfriend. I can barely keep myself alive, let alone a tiny human. 
First of all, let me press you a little. If that is the way you are thinking, it might be time to join a multi-generational gospel community, put yourself under the discipleship of an older man, and at least begin preparing for the possibility of discipling kids, or maybe serve in next gen. But if you feel like you're a long way off from having kids, or you are married, and you long for that, you would like to have a family, you would like to have kids, uh, but you haven't been able to conceive for one reason or another, or if you've been genuinely called to a life of God-honoring singleness, I will say, this church needs you. We families with children need you. I will say it again, we need you. We want you to be involved with our kids. Of course, yes, there is always a great need for volunteers over in the next gen, and let this be the you know, shameless plug to go sign up, serve in the next gen ministry. Cassie will appreciate it. Um, but I would say that it is much more than that. It goes far beyond that. We want you to be woven into the lives of our children. And I will say fellow parents of children, a lot of that responsibility falls on us. We've got to be proactive about involving the single folks and others who do not have children into our lives. Open your doors. And I know it can sometimes be tricky, especially if you're walking with friends that have struggled with infertility. You wonder, do they want to be around my kids? And yes, act with wisdom and discretion. Be empathetic and thoughtful. But remember that a lot of people that do not have children want to be around you. They want to be around your children. My sister Sarah is 37 years old and single, and she's with us a lot. She lived with us for a few months back in the winter. She was with us for the whole past week. We love having her in our home. And she talks all the time about the deep value that she places on her relationships with families, with children. In fact, just this past week we were talking about, she was like, I would much rather go on a trip with my friends that have kids than just yet another single girl's weekend, you know? And when she's with us, she is blessed by being invited into our family life, caring for our children, being cared for by our children. But also my children, especially my daughters, have an up-close they receive an up-close model of godly womanhood that in terms of lifestyle looks very different than what they see day-to-day -day in the life of their mother and the other mothers around them. I see a godly single woman living in service of the Lord. Another example, Josh and Lainey Duncan. Uh, we kind of have made it a little tradition where we will ride our bikes over to their house to live in the neighborhood and they keep a refrigerator stocked with little Gatorades. And, you know, they have one kid on the way, but for the past few months have just been a married couple with no kids. And I've loved seeing the way they invite our kids in and the way my kids respond to their love. I love this picture I found of Tad and, and little George. He's married now, but at this time, three years ago, Tad was a single dude, not a girlfriend. And he's there serving TJ alongside the son of a single mother in our church. One thing that we like to do sometimes, if you go to the next picture, is when we invite people into our home, especially single people, like, yeah, hey, come over for dinner. But also, you're invited to stay past that if you'd like. I know it's sometimes a little weird, but you're invited into our evening routine, our bedtime routine. Yeah, we're going to go to the back for a minute, get the PJs on, you know, get the teeth brushed. But then we come out, we do like our family devotional. We'll sing together read one story from the Jesus Storybook Bible, and then pray over you. What, an, what a meaningful thing that can be. I mean, think about it. A single person maybe that lives alone, 
hasn't been, maybe for months, hasn't been in the, a, a family context in a home, eating a, you know, a home-cooked meal, having hands laid upon them and prayed for. I think of one young, young woman that was in our gospel community several years ago who really struggled with a lot of deep anxiety and depression. And, and sometimes in her darkest days, you know, she would come over and sometimes even spend the night. And I remember watching the way, you know, little Clara would come and just be like, hey, can you read me a story? And would bring her a book and sit next to her on the couch. And I would just watch the disposition of this young woman change as she sat with Clara and read her a book. And the, the Clara was doing nothing other than being a child. But in that very act, in her very presence, she was ministering to this young single woman. Again, I will say it one more time. Children are not a hindrance to the mission. They are essential to it. I want to talk for a minute about the spiritual value of interacting with children. Yes, for parents, but also for just any believer. Kids have a wonderful way of forcing us to chill out spiritually. I don't know if any of you guys can relate, but for me, a lot of times in my life, that's what I've needed to hear the most. Somebody that struggles with anxiety, religious scrupulosity, kind of always in my head, you know. And I will tell you, it's very hard, not impossible, but hard to be lost in your own navel gazing when you have a little two-year-old following you around playing a ukulele or you're jumping on the trampoline being sprayed with a hose by a four-year-old. It's not impossible to be stuck in your own head, but it makes it a lot harder. You've got to sort of breathe a little bit. A lot of us, that's what we need, right? And I will tell you, there were many times in the past few weeks where I woke up early, 6 a.m., 6.15, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to prepare for this message. And then 15 minutes later, here comes the traveling circus into my office. <laughs> you know, and there's no, no sermon prep is happening after that. It's a lot of Legos and Play-Doh. Um, spending time with children pulls me away from the ever-popular inward-looking that so often marks millennial and Gen Z deconstruction. Discipling my kids forces me back to the simplicity of God's word. Being around kids helps to make you like a child, which as we see in this text should in some sense be a goal. There's a folk song that I like by, by a folk singer named Brandy Carlisle. It's called The Mother, in which she talks about, sings about the... Um, trials and joys of motherhood, parenthood. And talking about her friends without kids, she says, they still got their morning paper and their coffee and their time. They still enjoy the evenings with the skeptics and the wine. Oh, but all the wonders I have seen, I will see a second time from inside of the ages through your eyes. And I've found that to be true. In discipling my kids, it has helped me to see the simple truths of the gospel anew through their eyes. This past summer, a few months ago, we drove from Dallas to the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee, and it included all the things that you would include with a long family road trip. Part of that was probably 75% of the drive time, we were listening to either Adventures in Odyssey, kind of get a name in, or something called GT. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of GT. Probably not many. I saw one. <laughs> it's basically these very cheesy audio dramas that involves these two little kids and their friends that go through their daily life. And there is a ridiculously effervescent angel that appears with the Halo Express and sings for them scripture songs <laughs> that apply to their lives, usually backed by some very cheesy 80s synthesizer music. 
I listened to these growing up in the car with my mom, and now we were doing it with our kids. <laughs> and I'm in the front seat on this trip. I'm just like cringing, you know, goodness, how long have we been listening to this thing? <laughs> but the kids love it. They're in the back seat. They're memorizing every word, memorizing scripture, just like I did in the car with my mom when I was their age. And I'm convicted. Why am I so cynical? We have this sense like everything has to be so cool and authentic or sound like Hillsong or Bethel or we're just going to chuck it, right? We feel like we have to be constantly deconstructing to prove to ourselves that our faith is genuine. Kids aren't deconstructing anything. They're just receiving. They don't have, they don't have time to deconstruct. They're, they have nothing to deconstruct because their faith is simple. It's simply a reception of a gift. And I'm not saying that the idea of deconstructing and rethinking and analyzing and thinking critically about your faith is pointless, but I'm saying that deconstruction is only of value if it takes me back to this simple childlike neediness. When I'm sitting in that front seat of my car, kind of rolling my eyes at the silliness of GT, what needed to be deconstructed was the arrogance and crusty cynicism that had grown up around my heart. And yes, maybe there is some pointless, cheesy Christian subculture trappings that we need to jettison. But what really needs to be deconstructed more is my own prideful overcomplication of what has always been simple and true. And yeah, in our generation where there's such a high value placed on skepticism, that might be called naive. But look at the faith that Jesus commends in the Gospels. The faith of children, the poor, the simple, the desperate, and the needy. When Kelly and I lived in Austin, we used to attend the church under the bridge. So the church under a bridge, attended mostly by people who live on the street. I don't mean to over-romanticize it, but I will say I never met a single Christian there who was in the process of what we would call deconstruction. They didn't have time. They're clinging on so tight to the faith, they can't let go of it for a minute to deconstruct it. When you are hanging off the edge of a cliff on the end of a rope by one hand, you're not spending a lot of time analyzing and carefully inspecting the rope that you're holding onto. You're just holding on and praying it holds. And that's the heart of childlike faith. It's not overcomplicated. It's not overanalyzed. Like Peter in John 6, 68, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's a desperation. My faith is not anchored on the fact that I've thoroughly analyzed every aspect of it, but by the fact that I'm acutely aware of my need and acutely aware of the fact that I don't, and if I don't have the grace of Jesus to save me, I have nothing. Let's look at just a few examples over the course of scripture. One of my favorites is Rahab. This pagan prostitute lives in this walled city of Jericho, and here comes Joshua and the army of Israel that are going to come invade their land. And she, paraphrased, basically says, I don't know who y'all are. I don't really know that much about you. I don't know that much about your God, but I do know that he parted the waters of the Red Sea and that he has been clearing the way for y'all to come here. And this is a quote. She says, our hearts melted when we heard these things. And she confesses him as Lord. So little to go on, yet such a desperate faith. The Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus, hounding him to heal her daughter, who's possessed by a demon. And she cries out, 
Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the, the master's table. She's like, I'll take anything. The Roman centurion comes to Jesus asking him to heal. Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. The tax collector, Luke 18, in the temple, beating his breast, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The woman who's been bleeding internally for many years, reaching out, if I could only just touch the hem of his garment. The thief on the cross, hanging there saying, we're receiving the due reward for our deeds. This man has done nothing wrong. The prodigal son, with his face down in the pig slop, coming to the end of himself, crawling home to dad. David in Psalm 51, the broken and contrite spirit. Paul in Philippians 3, if anybody has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ and being his. It's not those who have analyzed and reasoned their way to him that Jesus commends. It's the desperate ones, those who are hanging on for dear life. Yet, still, look at the grace that Jesus has for the analyzers and the deconstructors. People like me, maybe like a lot of you. Look at how he receives Thomas and his doubts in, in John chapter 20. Jesus specifically goes to him and says, look, put your fingers here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. He's so gracious with him in his doubts and his struggles. Nicodemus in John chapter 3 who's called the teacher of Israel, who, quote, didn't understand these things. In other words, he should know better. Yet here he comes with all of his questions in the night. And Jesus is patient with him. The prodigal son's older brother, the bratty kid sitting outside the tent because he didn't get his party. And what does the father do? He goes to him, leaves the party, goes out to him, tries to entreat him to come on in. Jesus doesn't mock these people. He doesn't cast them out. He tells them the truth about where they're at. He calls them to account, but he's patient, patient with them. Even with those people who he knows their desire is not sincere, like the rich young ruler, he still has time for them. So listens and answers their questions. What a gracious savior to be there to give time to people like me, the privileged, educated, rule-following doubters. But, as he told Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, those with childlike faith. Now, at the end of every service here at Northway, we pray this together. Lord, send us out into the world as ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors for your kingdom. And I want to close this morning by considering what Jesus' words in Mark 10 mean for us as sent ones, as ambassadors for Christ? How does this passage affect the way that we ought to see our neighbors, especially unbelievers? Now, I know we live in an incredibly confusing and challenging time. It's a time when we struggle to agree on even the most basic shared idea of reality. Our worldviews are challenged constantly, and many people find themselves questioning what previously would have simply and easily been accepted as fact. But when you really get down to the core of it, people are still just pretty simple. I would contend that in a world of so much hurt, confusion, and injustice, people really just want to be assured of three things. I matter, I am loved, and I am good. There is another folk song 
that George Damov turned me on. By the way, this is George and Jeannie's last Sunday here. So if you see them, give them a hug. Uh, he introduced me to another folk song by a singer, Mark Hurd, who's a believer. And it goes like this. The colors here are monochrome, studies in one shade of gray. The good times and the hard times cut from the same gray cloth. And all the fires that crackle here consumed but do not burn. All light and no heat. And I just want to get warm. The days they rattle past me like a tunnel round a train. Landscapes and heartaches, I don't know what I feel. All I know is my condition is much worse than I can tell. The small talk and the slow burn, and I just want to be healed. I just want to get well. I know it doesn't always seem like it, but this is where our neighbors are. Don't let the world feel overcomplicated and overconfusing. We can be baffled, we can be shocked and confused by gender dysphoria, you know, child abuse, pornography, addiction, mass shootings, all these things that we can't make sense of. But at the end of the day, people are hurting and they just want to get warm. My dad used to always say, life just tears people up. People are lost children stumbling around in the darkness looking for the light. They are Adam and Eve in the garden, victims of their own rebellion, grasping and stretching leaves to try to cover up and clothe themselves, trying to get warm. They might be running, they might be kicking against it, they might be putting up every wall they can possibly construct, but at the core of every person is that lost child who wants to be held and wants to be told that everything is going to be okay. What did it say at the end? He took them in his arms and blessed them. We want to know that dad looked at me and was happy. As I was preparing for this sermon, that famous scene at the end of Goodwill Hunting kept coming to mind. If you haven't seen the movie, it's a story of Will Hunting, portrayed by Matt Damon, and he's a brilliant kid from a poor neighborhood in South Boston, but because of his unhealed emotional wounds, keeps kind of torpedoing every opportunity and relationship he has in his, in his life. And he's meeting with uh, a counselor named Sean, portrayed by Robin Williams, and there's a famous scene at the end where Will's in Sean's office, Sean is holding his uh, file of the abuse that Will has suffered in his past. And he starts slowly moving toward him saying, Will, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And you can see in Matt Damon's brilliant acting how with every step that Sean takes towards him, the walls begin to crumble. And at the end, he falls into Sean's arms sobbing, securing Oscars for both of them. Um, <laughs> now, <laughs> the scene resonates so deeply because this is what we all want. We want to know that we are loved and accepted unconditionally. Everyone who has been holding it together, hiding behind arguments, efforts, achievements, and ideologies, at the end of the day, we want to be loved, held, and accepted. We just want to get warm. And there's one point in the scene where he's continuing to come towards them. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And Matt Damon says, don't F with me, Sean, not you. And you can see that he feels it coming. He knows that Sean, as counselor, is the only one who can really touch him because he loves him. And he's been trying to hold him off for so long, but he really knows all along that it's been a futile effort. And that's the way it is with our Lord. His grace is irresistible. We can suppress the truth and unrighteousness all we want. We can elevate the creature above the creator. We can insulate ourselves with self-exalting ideologies. But when the hound of heaven comes, there is no stopping him. 
When the storm blows and everything falls apart, we're still scared, lost children looking for dad. And this, folks, this is the good news that we hold out to our neighbors. Are you lost? Are you hurting? Come home to a father who loves you. Remember, he took them in his arms, blessed them, and laid his hands on them. This is how you come. And you guys, we don't have to have all the perfect arguments and explanations. You're sharing a story, the gospel, good news, that answers the deepest desires and hurts of everybody's hearts. And I know it's not always that obvious. People aren't just going to walk up to you and fall into your arms like Matt Damon does with Sean, right? With uh, Robin Williams. But they're hurting. Every person out there is hurting, desperate for help. I just want to be healed. I just want to be warm. I just want to get well. And we're simply holding out the light, pointing people, a lost, cold child to the Father. Why does Jesus tell people, tell us, to come to him like children? Because that is the only way you can come. Small, broken, hurting, desperate. One of the most devastating lines in the Jesus Storybook Bible for me is, uh, comes from the story of the fall, Genesis 3, where Sally Lloyd-Jones writes this, God's children hadn't just broken his one rule, they had broken his heart. Any parent knows this feeling. I will say on more than two occasions in our family, my wife and I have found the stash of candy wrappers already consumed, hidden under a bed or a blanket. And of course, we confront them. What is this? Like, like God to Adam in the garden, where are you? What is this thing you have done? And what is the response? Just like Adam in the garden, hide, cover up, blame shift, outright lie. And as a parent, what hurts the most in a situation like this? It's not the, the disobedience, the eating of the candy, even the lying. It's that feeling of, why do you not trust me? You don't believe that I love you? Like, just, we know what happened. Own up to it. We love you. You know, you know I love you. Why don't you believe that even if you tell me everything that I'm still gonna love you? And as Jesus said, if I, being evil, can feel this way towards my children, how much more does the broken heart of God long for his children's return? He says, like we just read at the beginning, come to me, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come that way, come like a child. Is that you? Are you tired? Do you just want to get warm? Come. He's a good father. So we, we run to him and rest, but we also walk in what Ephesians 1 calls the immeasurable greatness of his power. And so let us, as the church, jump down into the darkness, walking in the immeasurable power of our father, and hold out the light, the warmth to the dark and cold world while never leaving the Father's lap. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we have nothing apart from you. I pray that this morning for those that have been walking with you for many years uh, and those who have been walking with you for just a few days or don't know you at all, 
that we would all be keenly aware of that one thing, that there's only one way to come to you, that is as a needy child. Pray for those of us that need to be afflicted in our comfort, that you would do so in our hearts this morning. Those of us who need to be comforted in our affliction, that you would do the same. We have no hope other than the cross of Jesus. His blood shed for us that we might be uh, reconciled to you, brought into your family, though we were your enemies, and made new. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.